Take a Bible this morning and find Psalm 136. As we finished up Sunday school, I told my Sunday school class we were going to do Psalm 139. And when we got in here, one of my Sunday school members said, hey, we've already done 139. We want something new. And I said, I panicked for a minute. I thought, I don't think I did 139. He said, yeah, we did it. And Chris Harrington did it. And I said, well, I didn't do it. But Chris did it. So we're not going to do 139. We're going to do 136. There's an outline in your bulletin if you like to follow along. Psalm 136. This is a great psalm. I feel like if you're preaching a series through the book of Psalms and you're hitting some of the, I guess, quote-unquote high points, this would be one that you've got to stop and talk about and spend a Sunday morning to think about. You'll notice when you look at the text that the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, is repeated in each of the 26 verses in Psalm 136. Just over and over, that refrain comes at you, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that repetition is part of the function of this psalm. And this is on your bulletin. Psalm 136 was an antiphonal psalm sung during corporate worship in the temple. Now I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb, and I'm going to assume that most of you in this room made it through all of last week without using the word antiphonal. Maybe some of you had that come up in conversation, but I'm guessing you didn't. The word is a musical term, and it describes a song that is sung back and forth between two groups. It could be back and forth between two choirs, or it could be back and forth between a worship leader and the congregation. And what happened is the people gathered in the temple courts for worship is this would be one of the psalms that they would sing. And the worship leader would start it off, and he would sing the first part of the first verse. And then this phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, the people would sing behind him. And they would just sort of go back and forth all the way through Psalm 136. Apparently, this is one of the more popular songs they did in worship at the temple because very, very old tradition Uh, says that the Jews gave this particular psalm a name. They didn't do that with every psalm, but they gave this one a name, and they called it the Great Hallel. Hallel is uh, the Hebrew word basically for praise or for joyful worship. And so when they called Psalm 136 the Great Hallel, what they're saying is this is the great psalm of joyful praise. Thanksgiving is important. When you're joyfully praising God, you've got to give thanks. And so I want you to see this is on your outline again. Thanksgiving is essential and it's a necessary part of worship. And you see this idea of Thanksgiving being so important when you look at the repetition in Psalm 136. And there's actually two instances of repetition. The most obvious is the refrain that's in every verse, for his steadfast love endures forever. But there's another instance of repetition that brings in this idea of thanksgiving and makes it very important. If you look at verse 1, it starts off with give thanks to the Lord. And then you look at verse 2, says give thanks to the God of gods. And then verse 3 says give thanks to the Lord of lords. And then all the way at the end, so it's at the beginning at the end, sort of wrapping it up, Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. Four times called to give thanks. So it's the great Hallel. It's this psalm of joyful praise. Over and over again, you hear this refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. We're going to talk about that this morning. But don't miss this repetition at the beginning and the end where it talks about giving thanks to God. Thanksgiving is an essential and a necessary part of worship. Now this morning, I thought about 
standing up after the band sat down and I would sing the first part of verse 1 and you would sing the second part of verse 2. We just do it like we're in the temple. So we're not going to do that. I'm going to spare you of that, having to listen to me try to sing. We don't know the melody, but we are going to read it antiphonally. Okay, we're not going to sing it like they did in the temple, but we're going to read it like they would have sung it. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read the first part of each verse, and then you're going to respond with, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I know what it's like to be on that side of a scripture reading, okay, when you have to do a responsive reading. And the tendency is for you to read it like this, for his steadfast love endures forever for his steadfast love. We're not going to read it like that, okay? You're going to work up a little bit of gusto, a little bit of enthusiasm. You're going to be thinking about the words that we're reading and the importance of them. And while you don't need to break out into full Broadway song, we're going to have a little bit of emotion with this, okay? So if you want to follow on the screen, you can do that. Mine will be the regular font. Yours will be the bold. This is pretty simple. Are you ready? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we read this psalm 
And we hear over and over and over again that your steadfast love endures forever. And so we pray that you would press that into our hearts and our minds this morning. Help us to hear this great psalm of praise as a call to worship you for who you are and for what you have done and who you will always be. Father, help us to know you and to know ourselves and to understand how we relate to you. Father, be honored in our worship, not only our singing in this room, but the lives we live when we leave this room. We pray that your word would be powerful in our hearts and in our minds this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to just ask you a rhetorical question, okay? That means I do not want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think about this. Keep your answer to yourself. I want you to think about why you're here. I don't mean why are you here on this earth, like why did God put you on earth, why did he make you? I mean, why are you here in this room right now? Why are you here at church Sunday morning? I just want you to think about that for a second. Why do you come on Sunday mornings when you could be doing many other things, why do you come here? Rhetorical question. Some of you might say, I don't have a choice. Somebody made me come this morning. And whoever made you come, I would pat them on the back and say, well done, good job. But some of you may say, I don't have a choice. I, I would rather not be here, but somebody made me come, I have to be here. Some of you may say, if you are honest, I feel guilty about something I've done. I feel like I've done something that I should not have done, and I feel like being here this morning is maybe somehow going to make up for that with God. Some of you might say that. Some of you might say, you know, my alarm is set on Sunday mornings, and that is just what I do. I mean, Sunday rolls around, and it's a habit. I don't really think about it too much. I just, it's Sunday morning. You wake up. You get dressed. You go to church. We're going to go eat lunch afterwards. We're going to have a nap this afternoon. We're going to, whatever. It's just Sunday. It's routine. It's habit. I didn't even think about it. I'm just here on autopilot. And I would say, that's not the worst thing that could happen in your life, that coming to church is a habit, but it's also probably not the best reason to be here. Some of you may say, well, I came because I wanted to see family members or friends if I'm just real honest. I like the people in my Sunday school class. I like the folks I sit next to in church. I just wanted to see them, see how they're doing. I'm here for social reasons. Some of you may say, I need something from God or I want something from God. If I'm really honest, if you're really honest, you may say, there's something in my life that's sort of out there that I don't have yet and I want it. And I feel like if I come Maybe God will look favorably on me for coming to church and maybe he'll give me that in response, that thing that I want. Some of you, if you're really honest, may say, I don't want to get fired and I get paid to be here. <laughs> Just while we're all being honest, if you say, I, you know, it's work. Maybe that's the reason you showed up. Some of you may say, I, I like the, uh, the entertainment value. I mean, the band is really good, and uh, I enjoy the music, and uh, sometimes you tell a funny thing in the story, and kind of we chuckle, and you know, if I'm at home watching TV, it's like infomercials for food processors, and 
political interviews, and I'm kind of bored with that. The, I know there's a golf tournament on this morning, but you say, Sunday mornings, there's not a whole lot on that interests me, so this is more entertaining than anything else I could be doing Sunday morning at 10.30. I think if we're honest, most of us would say we're probably here this morning with mixed motives, right? There's probably a variety of things that brought you to come to church this morning, but I do want you to understand, and I'm speaking especially to those of us who get paid to be here on Sunday mornings. If your primary motivation for being in this room this morning on Sunday morning is not to worship God, that's not the primary reason you're here. You're here for all the wrong reasons. It doesn't matter what comes after it. It doesn't matter what goes into the mix. If your primary motivation is not to grow closer to God through worship Worship through hearing his word preached, worship through singing praises, worship through prayer. If that's not your primary motivation, you're here for all the wrong reasons. Now, don't get me wrong. Whatever your motivation, I'm glad you're here. I'm not saying you need to get up and leave. However, I just want you to think about the reason that you get up and that you come to church on a Sunday morning. What is it that you're here to do? What is the reason that you wake up out of bed and you you put your clothes on and you come here on a Sunday morning when you could be doing any number of other things? Psalm 136 is a call to worship. It's the great Hallel, the great psalm of joyful praise. It's a reminder about who God is and what he's done for his people and how we should respond in worship with thanksgiving and why we should respond in worship, all of the things that are listed in Psalm 136. And so we're just going to kind of break it down into three sections. A few verses on the front, then a big chunk of verses in the middle, and then one final verse at the end. And I want, to, I want you to see motivation, reasons to worship God, reasons to wake up on a Sunday morning when you could be doing anything else and to come to this room to gather with God's people to worship and to sing and to listen to me talk. Why would you do that? Here's three reasons from Psalm 136. The first one is this. We worship and we give thanks because God is God. That's high-level stuff, right? I mean, this is rocket science. You need lots of advanced degrees for this. We worship God. The first reason right out of the gate, we give thanks to him because God is God. Look at the first nine verses. I'm just going to read them again. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those first nine verses are saying one thing to you. God is God. He's the creator, and you should worship him. You should give thanks to them simply because he is who he is. So let me tell you a story about when I was in college. In college, uh, you got to take usually one or two PE credits. 
And where Brooke and I went to school, the first one was like general PE. And then you had to pick something else. You had to pick a sport. And so the school we went to at the time was well known for having a great bowling team. And I thought, maybe I could just ride their coattails. I'm going to take bowling. And so I signed up for bowling. And the course was pretty straightforward. You had to show up two times a week. You had to have a partner. You had to bowl two games every time you came to class, and you had to keep your own score. That was the tricky part. You had to learn to keep your own score. You couldn't just type it in the computer. They weren't counting down there at the end. You had to learn to do that. And so I did this for a whole semester. Went twice a week, bowled two games, and I had a partner. And the guy that I got matched up with on the very first day of class, his name was Co. He liked to be called Danny because he felt like that was a little bit more American, but I like Ko because that's his real name. And so me and Ko, this guy from Taiwan, we're bowling buddies. And every day we come into bowling, we bowl a couple of games, and we talk, and we become friends. In fact, Brooke and I become very good friends with Ko and a group of his buddies. And there's a picture I'll show you. There's Brooke and I at our wedding uh, reception, I guess you would call it. And uh, that's us in the middle, in case you couldn't tell. And uh, anyways, I had hair and um, my wife looks exactly the same. She had shorter hair there. My buddy Co was on the far right, yellow tie, black shirt, black pants. So that's Co. So we bowl together and we become good friends and they would take us out to eat Chinese food and we would go eat and do different things together. And Thanksgiving rolled around this semester. I took this class in the fall. Thanksgiving rolls around and I say to these guys, so what are you guys doing for Thanksgiving? Well, sitting in the dorm room. I said, well, don't sit in the dorm room. Come over and eat at my house. So we invite these guys to come over to our house. And it was a, an interesting Thanksgiving. We had turkey and stuffing and all the dressings. And then we had about six different pots of Chinese food. And you just went through and got whatever you wanted. And it was all really good. It's the only time I've had Chinese food on Thanksgiving. But an interesting thing happened when these guys showed up to my house. They drove up to Amarillo from Canyon. They all came together. Uh, I hadn't really told them who was going to be there. I just said, my family's going to be there. We want you to come. And so there was about uh, 10 or 12 of them that came. And they get out, and they walk in. And in the living room is my great-grandmother. Her name was Geneva Lummis. We called her Mama. And uh, this Thanksgiving, she was about 95 years old. And this is uh, like the Christmas after that Thanksgiving. So it was pretty close to when we were there. And she's sitting in that very chair. All my buddies walk in. They uh, put their food down. You know, everybody introduces themselves, says hi. But really quick, these guys did not plan this. They didn't know my great-grandma was going to be there. It's just spontaneous. They did it. They sort of scan the room, and they see her. And she's clearly the oldest person in the room. And they just get in a single file line and they walk up to her in front of her and one at a time, one did it, then the next did it, then the next did it, they get down on their knees in front of her and hold her hand and bow down, not to pray to her, but just to show her respect. She thought this was the greatest Thanksgiving ever. (laughs) She said, invite those guys for Christmas. I like these guys. Invite them for Easter. They're the best. She loved it. And just one by one, they walk in, they get down. They couldn't speak English very well, and she couldn't hear anything. There's no real communication going on here. But what they're saying to her is, we respect you for who you are. We've never met you. We didn't plan this. We didn't know you were going to be here. 
and you've never done anything for us. It's not like you're our benefactor paying our tuition and here we are groveling before you because we owe some debt to you. You've never done anything for us. But simply because of who you are, you deserve our respect. Listen, Psalm 136 is telling you something really important. Forget all the great things that God has done in your life, and there's many, but just set them aside for a minute and realize that because he is God, he's worthy of your praise and he's worthy of your thanksgiving. Not because of what he's done for you, just because he is who he is. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in praising God, singing to God for all the things that he's done for us. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in praising God because of what he's done for us through Christ as our Savior that we forget before we even get to that, we owe him worship simply because he is God. You realize the angels worship God for this reason, because he's God, right? The Bible describes this, this race of spiritual beings that God created, angels. Some of them sinned long ago, and they were not given a chance for redemption. They were not given a second chance. There was no one sent to redeem these angels. They were simply cast out of the presence of God. Those who did not rebel and did not sin against God have never sinned. The Bible describes them as holy, not in the sense that they're unique like God's unique, but in the sense that they're sinless. They don't need a savior. They have nothing that God needs to forgive in their life. They've never transgressed any of his commandments. And yet when you read in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, you read about these holy, sinless beings coming into the presence of God and getting down, covering their faces, bowing down in worship. Why? Because he's God. It's not because he's their savior or their redeemer or anything like that. It's because he is God and they're not. And they worship him simply because he's God. You know, from time to time, as I talk with people, I hear someone begin a sentence like this. I could never worship a God who, fill in the blank. Could never worship a God who. And I just tell you, it doesn't matter what comes after that phrase. You're on really thin ice. You realize what you're saying? You're acknowledging that there is a God, that he's out there, but you're setting limits on what he can do or what he can be like. Do you realize the insanity of that? The folly of that? Do you realize that if God is God, you don't get a say in what he's like? Neither do I. It's not up for vote. If he's God, he's God. And he's worthy of your worship simply because he is who he is. And Psalm 136 is calling you to worship God. It's calling you to give thanks to God. But it's stating right up front, you need to worship him and you need to give thanks to him simply because he is who he is. Because he's God. Here's a second motivation. We worship and give thanks because God is the Redeemer. This is the largest part of Psalm 136. We won't read all of it again, but it's verse 10 all the way to verse 25. The psalmist sort of retells the story of the exodus from Egypt. And the exodus is the great story of redemption in the Old Testament. Over and over, 
As the the storyline progresses, God's people look back to the Exodus and they remember what God did to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. The story is really pretty simple. God's people were slaves. They were enslaved. They were helpless to save themselves. They were in desperate need of God doing for them what they could not do for themselves. And the story ends showing you and showing me that God is up to the task. He redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them out, you read about Exodus 15, 13, Moses leading this song for all the people. Moses and Aaron stand up and they sing this song. And in this song, Moses praises God for redeeming the people from slavery. You can look it up later in Exodus 15, 13. It's redemption. It's a purchase. It's paying a price to set somebody free. And when you get to the New Testament, you realize something important about the Exodus. The Exodus was a big deal, but it was like the preview. It was like the coming attraction to the feature presentation, right? It was just a pointer making you look forward and teaching you truths about God, about what God would ultimately do for his people at the cross. And the story of the cross is very similar. In fact, it's exactly the same story as the Exodus. You and I are slaves, We don't wear shackles, we don't bow down before pharaohs, but we're enslaved to our own sin. We're unable to do anything about that left to ourselves, just like the people were helpless to set themselves free. There's not a person in this room that can do a single thing to free yourself from the power of the sin in your life. You can't. Someone in our Sunday school class was sharing a testimony a few weeks ago, and I liked what she said. She said, you know what the problem in life is, everywhere you go, you're there. The problem goes with you. The problem's in here. It doesn't matter where you go. You're enslaved to the sin in your own life, and you can't do anything about it. You're in desperate need of God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And the story of the cross teaches us, just like the story of the Exodus, that God was up to the task. He did for us through Christ what we would never have been able to do for ourselves. And you read this in Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us. He didn't pay a price and set us free with gold or with silver. And he didn't do it with plagues of frogs and ants and parting an ocean in two. The Bible says he redeemed us with his own blood like a lamb without spot or blemish. The great story of the Bible is that God has done for you what you would never have been able to do for yourself. He's given you freedom and he's given you forgiveness and he's given you grace. Not because he took all of your sin and just swept it under the rug and said, let's forget about that. Because he took all of your sin and he placed it on his son and he bore the curse and the penalty for your transgressions. This is what the rest of Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our sin, he took our penalty, and he paid the redemption price, the ransom price, so that we could be set free and forgiven, so that we could have life. Listen, we just spent a week trying to teach kids that as best we could. That there's nothing you can do to earn your way with God. That's not what Christianity is about anyways. Christianity is first and foremost about what God has done for you through Christ. 
And some of you sit in this room this morning and you say, you know, as you were asking all those questions about why am I here, why am I in church, I probably gave wrong answers. I'm here to try to earn something with God. I'm here to try to pay God back for something. I'm here to try to manipulate God into doing what I want Him to do. And maybe this morning for the first time the light bulb's going off and you're realizing that's a poor reason to come to church on a Sunday morning. But what a great reason to come to church on Sunday morning that God has done for us what we would have never been able to do for ourselves. He's paid the price to set us free and to forgive us and to give us new life. So we worship and we give thanks because God is the Redeemer. One last reason, this one should be obvious. We worship and we give thanks because God's steadfast love endures forever. 26 times, that ought to be enough for even a dummy like me to get it. His steadfast love endures forever. The summer after I took bowling in college, I signed up for a summer mission trip through the North American Mission Board. And when I went to sign up, I've told you this story before, that you got to pick what state, 50 states, pick any state, which state do you want to go to? And the person leading the class said, you can go ahead and put Hawaii, Florida, California. We don't send anybody there. So I filled my form out and I put Hawaii, Florida, California. They emailed me back and they said, we're going to send you to Hawaii. We're going to send you the big island of Hawaii and we're going to let you work in a church, Kona Baptist Church for the summer. And uh, they needed all sorts of things that summer, help with different ministries and programs, and so I did that. And one of the things that was interesting to me when I got there, if you've ever been to the Big Island, you know what I'm talking about. You're flying to Hawaii. It was my first time. You're going to Hawaii, and you're expecting palm trees and grass and all this beautiful stuff, and you land in just black lava rock as far as the eye can see. It's just a ginormous lava field. You look around and you think, this just like, it's a volcano and there's just lava everywhere and it's ugly. This is not what I signed up for. I signed up for Hawaii. You have not taken me to Hawaii. And you drive from the airport into town and you eventually get to the pretty stuff, but you drive around this highway that goes around the Big Island and it's just massive lava fields, this black rock. And you can look up the hill and you can see where it flowed down right to the ocean. It's just huge fields of black rock. And one thing that tourists like to do is they like to get white coral from the ocean. They take it out on this black rock and they sort of write messages on it. And it looks something like this. You're driving down the highway and um, there's a rest in peace message. There's hearts. There's one to grandma. There's one to... K and J and something and all these people and you drive and there's just all these messages and tourists like to go out there and they park on the side of the road and they go out and they want to write a message to somebody and take a picture of it. Now here's the thing. Nobody's dumb enough to say, okay, let's go down and get our snorkel gear on and we need to gather a bunch of white coral from the ocean and then we're going to take it out to the highway and write it. You just go out there and you find this guy who wrote a note to grandma and you just rearrange it. And you take his sign and you make it say whatever you want it to say. Which means you go out there and it's hot on that black rock and the sun's beating down on you and you're bending over and those pieces of coral are really small. So it takes a whole bunch of them to write a message out. And you put them in place and you get them just right and you back up and you say, no, that letter looks funny. And you fix it and you spend all this time writing a message to somebody you care about. And then the next day when you drive down the highway, it says, hi, Bob. You say, well, it's not the message I wanted to convey. You understand when Psalm 136 says 26 times his steadfast love endures forever, it means what it says. 
You understand no one or no thing is going to come along and rearrange that message so that it means something else, right? It means if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to live in fear and worry and anxiety waking up today saying, well, I blew it this morning. It's eight in the morning. I've already blown it. I don't know if I'm in God's good graces today. I better go to church and make up for it. You understand, if you're a follower of Christ and you've trusted in his finished work, then Psalm 136 says to you, look, from the beginning to the middle to the end, it's not about you. It's about what God has done for you through Christ. And if you trust in his finished work, then you can rest in this. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever for you. Today, tomorrow, the next day, his steadfast love endures forever forever. That's why Romans 8 is such good news. You go back and read Romans 8. I've given you the verse here and it's on your, on your notes. It says, look, while we were sinners, God gave Christ to die for our sins. Now that he's done that, there's nothing that can separate us from his love. That's Paul's version of Psalm 136. His steadfast love endures forever. That's why Ephesians 3 is such good news. Paul says to the church, I'm praying for you that you would understand the love that God has for you in Christ. And by the way, I'm praying that you would understand it. It's incomprehensible. You can't wrap your arms around it. You're never going to get there, but I'm praying that you would get closer and closer and closer to understanding this truth. You see it in Romans 8, Ephesians 3, Psalm 136, his steadfast love endures forever. So I've told you before that one of my heroes from church history is a guy named Athanasius. And his nickname was the Black Dwarf. He lived in North Africa, when likely he was an African-American guy. This guy saved the church, right? He lived in a day and a time when false teaching and, and heresy was completely out of control. And this was the one guy who stood up, even though he knew it would cost him his life and his comfort and his safety and his security, he stood up. He stood up to the religious establishment and he stood up to the political establishment. And he called a spade a spade. And when somebody wasn't teaching what lined up with the scriptures, this guy called him on it. In fact, everybody knew this guy was so bold in his witness that the phrase at the time was Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. It was like the whole world was siding with the, the side of error and heresy and falsehood, and he was the only guy standing for the truth. If you stand against the political establishment and you live in the Roman Empire, that puts you at danger, it puts your life in danger. And depending on who the emperor, emperor was and how unorthodox his theology was, this guy was on the run a lot of his life. And the story goes that in about the year 356, he was preaching at his church in Alexandria. And they were having an evening service. And leading up to this night, this worship service, he had been writing different things. He had been sending out these letters. He had been preaching very vocally that the emperor, the guy who had all the power, was teaching complete heretical nonsense. And he was just saying it like it was. And this emperor finally got tired of it. And so as Athanasius is preaching to his congregation, this emperor sends 5,000 armed soldiers. That's a lot of armed soldiers, by the way. 5,000 armed soldiers to arrest one man. And they arrive in Alexandria. They're having a worship service. And they just sort of surrounded the church in the middle of the city there. 
And they realized what was going on. 5,000 soldiers make a lot of noise. So somebody looks out the window, peeks out the door, sees what's going on, and they tell him in the middle of the service, these guys are here, and they say they're here for you. So he says to his people, sit down, don't go anywhere. Obviously, the worship service is about to change a little bit. And he opens his Bible, and he opens it of all passages to Psalm 136. That's what he picked. And he sits there with his people, and verse by verse, he reads this to them. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. All the way through, 26 times, his steadfast love endures forever. And then the story goes that after he finished reading it, he closed his Bible up. It was night. Somehow he was able to escape 5,000 soldiers through the dark streets of Alexandria. But he had to escape out into the wilderness, and he lived the next six years in his life on the run, moving from place to place, trying to keep his location secret until this emperor would die and it would be safe for him to go back to Alexandria. And I think it's striking that a man who's facing persecution, a man who is now on the run for his religious beliefs and his public witness for the truth, when he has one last chance to talk to his people, of any of the things that he could open this book to and read, of any of the things he could say to them, any last words he could leave with them, he says, what I want to leave with you is Psalm 136. It was not just a open your Bible and put your thumb down kind of moment, you understand. It was intentional. And what Athanasius is saying to his people as he's about to run for his life is this. We don't worship God just because it's easy and comfortable. We don't worship God because it makes us popular. We don't worship God and give thanks to God because the government is going to give us a pat on the back and support us in what we believe and what we do. We worship God because He's God. We worship God because He's redeemed us. And we worship God because regardless of what your circumstance or your situation may be like, His steadfast love endures forever. And this morning we're going to worship God for the same reason. So you bow and let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the book of Psalms and we're grateful for this this great psalm of joyful praise. We're grateful for the reminder that we owe you worship simply because you are who you are. If you had never done a good thing for us, we would still owe you worship and praise and thanksgiving. Father, but out of your grace and your mercy, you have done everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. You've redeemed us through the blood of Christ. And Father, we pray this morning for those in the room who are trying to work for their salvation. They're trying to to earn their way with you. And we pray that today they would find rest in the finished work of Jesus. That they would believe that he has done for them what they could never do for themselves. Father, we worship you because regardless of what the government says or regardless of what our circumstances say or or the doctors tell us, your steadfast love endures forever. And nothing can change that in our life from now to all eternity. 
And I pray that we would rest in that this morning. We would find hope in it. That we would find joy in it. Father, you are worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. So as we stand together and as we sing and as we lift our voices to you, we pray that you would receive our worship, receive our thanksgiving. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand.